This episode deals with the sensitive and disturbing topic of suicide based on the personal experience of Rabbi Shalom Hammer, whose daughter Gila died by suicide. While Rabbi Hammer is not a mental health professional, his viewpoint and approach, grounded in that tragedy, is very important for us all to hear. There was a lone soldier from California who called me, came here to Israel serving in the army. He called me. He said, I have a terrible problem. He said, I am contemplating suicide. I walked over to a psychiatric hospital in uh, Ramat Gan and he knocked on their doors and he said, I need to be admitted. I need treatment. I need help. And they turned them away. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is the Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Less than two years ago, Gila Hammer died by suicide. Since that catastrophic tragedy, her father, Rabbi Shalom Hammer, has been working nonstop to advocate for important changes in the way that the Israeli establishment, medical and governmental, treats mental illness. Rabbi Hammer has also become an important advocate for mental health awareness and suicide prevention. He does this in Gila's memory in order to do whatever possible so that other families do not go through the horror that he, his wife, and children have experienced. Rabbi Shalom Hammer is a lecturer for the Israeli Defense Forces and an educator in the Nativ conversion course of the IDF. He's a certified instructor for mental health first aid. Rabbi Hammer is the founder and director of Makom Mishutaf, an organization which offers non-denominational and non-coercive educational programming throughout Israel's pre-military academies in Kibbutzim, emphasizing open dialogue, empathy, and breaking stigmas in mental health. He has authored five books and serves as a lecturer for communities worldwide. If you would like to contribute in Gila's memory to help Rabbi Hammer break stigmas in mental health, please click on the link that appears in the description of this podcast. Rabbi Shalom Hammer, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Thank you for having me, Rabbi Khan. Before we get into our specific topic today, I'd like to ask you about the tragic circumstances that led you into the field of discussing mental health publicly. Uh, well, it, when we speak about that, I mean, the, the tragic circumstance that led me into this field is uh, the catastrophe that happened to our daughter, Gila, who suffered for about a year and a half from probably what we would call PTSD. Uh, she went through a major traumatic incident, a sexual assault. And um, as a result, uh, slowly but surely, she moved through an anxiety, a depression, and uh, attempted suicides. And tragically, 23 months ago, on December 5th of 2019, she died. She took her life. And um, basically, within about three days after the Shiva, for better or for worse, the kind of person I am is that I kind of jump in and try to uh, solve and try and make impact. And certainly with regards to commemorating her memory, I decided to uh, try and rectify and assist within the field of mental health in whatever capacity that I could, in memory of Gili. I remember at the time you told me that 
Gila did not want to die. That was a line which resonated and really, it was haunting almost. People use the term commit suicide, and you emphasize that's the wrong terminology. People die by suicide because it's not a choice. It's a disease. That's 100% correct. And people still use that terminology today. Uh, Firstly, it's very, very important for us to recognize that the vast majority of people who die from suicide do not want to die. Judaism, other Abrahamic religions consistently emphasize that the most valued ideal that we have is the ideal and the attribute of life. And it's something that, of course, resonates within the Bible uh, and the Quran and whatnot, but it's not something that has to. We as humans naturally are inclined to embrace life. We want to live. Life is a valued attribute, prize, gift that's given to us. And every person wants to live. People who die from suicide, they do so because they find themselves trapped. Uh, One of the fastest growing populations, increase in populations of suicide is in adolescence. One of the reasons for that is because there's impulsivity. There's a narrow vision in terms of the world that's ahead of them. And they see suicide as almost the only option for them when they're suffering from depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. But it's not something that they choose to do. And the reason why I emphasize that, perhaps even more importantly, is because the moment that we can give people who are contemplating suicide a glimpse or a shimmer of hope and light as to why they should think otherwise or perhaps entertain a different option is the moment that you can absolutely make a difference between life and death. You can save their life. You mentioned also about committing suicide. You know, that was yesteryear when that type of vernacular was used. Um, People would say commit suicide. Even the rabbis of past generations did not understand mental illness. And so when someone died from suicide, they were buried in other parts of the cemetery, in a Jewish cemetery, in a separate section. And a lot of that was a lack of understanding of mental health. People who die from suicide, they do so because, Rahman al-Islam, they are suffering from a mental illness, but it's, they haven't committed a crime. They don't look to do that intentionally, and they're certainly not looking to hurt anyone And it's something also with regards to mental illness that I often remind people, people who suffer from mental illness, naturally, people who do not, they have a tendency to be afraid of them. And what's important for us to remember is that, or people who suffer from mental illness, the people who are, uh, who they are most, let's say, dangerous to are not to others, but rather to themselves. Uh, And so we don't use the term commit when it comes to suicide. We don't use terms, which I still hear being thrown around, successful or unsuccessful. There are people who will say, this person successfully died from suicide. There's no success when it comes to tragedy, catastrophe, and the loss of life. So today we're going to speak about some of the problems that exist when it comes to our kids, our adolescents, mental health, and the risks of suicide, as well as more hopefully, some of the potential solutions that either exist or perhaps should exist and can exist, and you're going to speak about both. So I want to open up, Rabbi Hammer, by quoting you a Facebook post you put up very recently, if that's okay with you. You wrote, last week, yet another young adult died from suicide in Beit Shemesh, Israel. This is the seventh youngster, 
third adolescent, 18 years old, to die from suicide in Beit Shemesh in less than two years. Why does this happen? The following exchange took place a week ago between myself and a mother of a 14-year-old daughter. The mother contacted me in the past to discuss what her daughter was going through. A week ago, she called me in a panic. Her daughter ran away from home with a knife in hand and was terribly distraught. She called the police and then texted me for advice. Here is the exchange that followed, and you wrote that you have the consent of the mother to share this information. Rabbi Hammer said, The police must find her. You must take her straight to the hospital. Do not allow the hospital to discharge her. Insist that you're not letting them send her home. The mother says, Got it. There was a search party, and thank God we found her. Rabbi Hammer responded, Baruch Hashem, you must take her to the hospital. She's crying for help. This is not going to go away. It is a process, one step at a time, but first her safety. The mother said, got it. You then wrote, the next morning I texted the mother to follow up and see how her daughter was doing, presumably in the hospital. You said, what's doing? Not prying, just checking if I can be helpful. The mother said, I know, I appreciate it. The hospital refused to admit her last night. This is even though she, my daughter, told them explicitly that she won't take her medication, that she isn't safe, and that she won't guarantee not to hurt herself. Rabbi Hammer then said, that is insane, unacceptable. You must get her into a hospital. Don't leave until they admit her. The mother said, we pushed hard three times. Was a young guy on duty, he refused to admit her. You then conclude, tragically, these scenarios have become too familiar. Why is more not being done on a municipal and governmental level? One of the main problems in Israel, not limited to mental health, is the consistent tendency to be reactionary rather than preventative. Precautionary efforts and preemptive initiatives need to materialize in order to ensure that these gross miscalculations and tragic consequences do not repeat themselves. This is egregious. Let's talk about the problems are implicit and obvious, but can you explicitly say what's going on over here? Uh, I can. I can lead you uh, down a very dark road and uh, a very sad one and tragic one. Uh, and we could talk about this for hours, but let me try and highlight what happened yesterday. Uh, there's an MK, a member of the Knesset named Michal Waldiger. Uh, she's, uh, I, I know her, I've met her a number of times and uh, hopefully will be involved more with regards to efforts in mental health. But she's a very, at least from my assessment, she seems to be a very impressive person. In other words, not only the typical politician. And she seems to have a sincere interest in making impact and making a difference. And one of the reasons why, and she's public about this, is because she suffers from mental illness with one of her children and her family. And sometimes, unfortunately, it's when it hits us and impacts us personally that all of a sudden we become activists. But whatever the reason why, uh, I guess to be activist in reaction is, is a positive thing. Having said that, she organized yesterday in the Knesset a Mental Health First Aid Awareness Day. Uh, now, uh, in the world, the world at large, uh, October 10th, is Mental Health Awareness Day throughout the world. And Israel is one of the few countries in the world that does not yet recognize it and does not yet, I guess, uh, 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 I wouldn't say, uh, commemorate it or accentuate it or emphasize it or have programs for it in Israel on that day. And Michal Waldiger is very involved in a bill that she wants passed that it should be recognized as a national day, a referendum whereby people will 
uh, be involved in mental health awareness and programs, have lectures on that day. The moment that it becomes nationally recognized is the moment that by law, there has to be programs that are implemented on that day. And, and so obviously the impact could be uh, very, very strong. Is Israel actively resisting it or they're just not bothering with it? You know, I couldn't give you a straight answer because I don't know behind the scenes. I don't think it's actively resisting. I think it's a, a lack of awareness, okay, which is a problem that, it, that plagues society here. And also there's no question that stigma, stigmas are very, they fester within society here. They're very strong and impactful. So for example, that's why, uh, and I mentioned this in my last podcast with you, I believe, but when uh, Litzman was the Sarah Briut, was the Minister of Health here in Israel, the past uh, Minister of Health, he cut the budget for mental health. He cut it down significantly to about 10 to 20 percent of that budget. So you're talking about, you know, obviously a, a serious, serious cut within that budget. So it, it's almost impossible to work with that kind of budget. And part of that is because there's just not enough awareness and understanding of the need that's out there, okay? So this is a very serious problem. She brought this day of awareness to the Knesset yesterday, and I was invited to, to be there, to participate in the conference. And what I discovered are things that I'm familiar with already, but nonetheless shocking to hear them. So for example, okay, and I'm gonna share with you two things that, that two highlights that will absolutely highlight and accentuate what we're trying to say here and coined them in, in, in one in one term. And that is firstly, okay. there was one of the chief psychiatrists from the government, and I, I don't remember his name, I couldn't even see his name on his placard from where I was sitting. But one of the things that he said was that the hospitals, the psychiatric wards in the hospitals and the psychiatric hospitals are so overloaded and they're they're so overworked and there's just no room and no capacity to host or to uh, to have the people who need to be there uh, to, to care for them. So they're limited with space to the extent, and this is he said this in passing, but you'll see what happened as a reaction. He said in passing, to the extent that we have six people sleeping on mattresses in one room in a ward. Now, the moment that he said that, everyone's you know ears perked up. And one particular member of the Knesset said, you said mattresses? He said, yeah, they're not even sleeping on beds. In other words, they're sleeping on six mattresses on a floor in a room in a ward because there's no room to have, or they have to maximize the room in that room, the, the, the capacity. And mm -hmm. so they have mattresses as opposed to beds. Now, on top of that, he also said that because of that, there is, obviously more proximity between male and female, between men and women and young adults, young female adolescents, male adolescents within the same ward. So in other words, there's an inability to uh, kind of separate between them as it should be. And there's an over, I guess, an overpopulation or overstuffing of people in one place. So what happens is, is that you have ex-cons, right, or ex-criminals who need psychiatric care, and they're being placed in these wards where there are crowded females and crowded males in the same room. And because of that, obviously, someone 
who is dealing with psychiatric problem and even someone who's not, but you're dealing with a very tenuous and potentially uh, problem sexually uh, in terms of assault, in terms of arousement and so on and so forth. And it's a, it's a horrible situation. Now, when he said this, and he said this in passing, which was shocking enough, one of the members of the Knesset, and again, I didn't, I didn't get her name, but she was in shock and she started to, she actually yelled. I have it on video. I actually will, will post it on my Facebook page soon. But um, she actually yelled and said, you know, where exactly? She said, did you say mattresses? And he said, yeah, we have them in mattresses because we just don't have room for beds. And she said, where are we in Israel or are we in the middle of a, a city in Mexico? And she was totally appalled. Now, that's one example of what's going on here. The overcrowding, the inability to, to offer treatment because there's just not enough capacity. There's not enough room to deal with the mental illness that exists in this country. And that itself is indicative of a lack of budgetary concern. You only have overcrowding when people are not putting any money into it. Exactly, exactly. Now, I want to point out that it's not just budget. Obviously, budget is a huge part of it, but it's not just budgeting that's the problem, but we'll get to that in a moment. But the other thing I want to point out is that at the conference, there was a a very impressive person. I've heard him before, uh, Dr. Gil Zaltzman, who is the, the head of, um, of the hospital in, um, in Gaya, the Gaya Hospital, Gaya Psychiatric Hospital. Uh, and he spoke there and he said that there's just not enough capacity, there's not enough psychiatrists in the country to treat people. He said, we don't have enough room in our wards. And he said that it's total insanity. He said, and I quote you verbatim, he said if there are over about 650 people a year in Israel on average who die from suicide. Now, I always explain to people that those are people that we, uh, excuse the expression, know about. There are probably mm-hmm. more that we're not aware of, okay, because they're either it's not publicized because of contagion uh, or, it's, or, or the family chooses not to say and so on and so forth because, again, of the stigmas that exist in society but it's certainly in their right to, to choose to or not to do so. But having said that, if 650 people die annually on average from suicide, he said, and I quote you, if this was happening as a result of a terror attack or a foreign entity attacking the country or as a result of a pandemic or a virus, the entire government would be up in arms and they would be trying to solve and deal with the situation. But because it's a result of mental illness, and he said this, he said, it's kind of put on the back burner. These people are not well, they're committed, they're different, they're strange. They have uh, you know, needs that are over and beyond our norm. And, uh, and he says that they are dismissed. And he said, it's absolutely appalling. Can I ask you a question about that, Rabbi Hammer? Perhaps a, a disrespectful question. Some people might say the problem is that, is it really treatable? Is it something which, even if we put more resources into it, would it have an impact? What would you say to that? The answer is it's absolutely treatable, especially when you're dealing with adolescents who are suffering from depression, anxiety. These are treatable diseases. They need proper treatments, proper therapy, Uh, They don't necessarily, by the way, need to be or they should not necessarily be admitted to a hospital, okay, which is uh, perhaps many times the last resort. But I want to tell you something. One of the things that he said, uh, Dr. Zaltzman, 
just for example, is that he said he knows of thousands of people who are searching for help, uh, mental health professionals. They want to see a psychologist. They want to see a psychiatrist. You go and try and see a psychiatrist. Let's say you can't afford one privately. You go through your kupat cholim, through social services, social medicine, which is per perfectly your right as an Israeli citizen. Go and try and get an appointment with a psychiatrist through Maccabi or through Klalit or 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 Miuchedet. It's at least a six-month period of waiting just to get that first initial appointment. That's to see a psychiatrist. Um, to, to get a therapist, it's almost non-existent within social services, social medicine here in Israel. So yeah, people who can afford something privately, even someone who can afford something privately, okay, they themselves are hard pressed to find the therapist that they can see or a psychiatrist. And I'll give you a perfect example. Last mm -hmm. week, I got a call from a young woman, 25 years old, who is in charge of a young adult group and ad teens, adolescents who came over for the year. It's a gap program, but will go unnamed. And she said, I have a girl who is expressing suicidal thoughts. She told her friend that she is contemplating suicide. She said, I have called four psychiatrists within the central area of Israel because, and, and it's private, private psychiatrists who will get paid full, you know, the full price. We're not even working within the HMO system. Right, absolutely. And they all said, we have no room, call us in two months. Now that's outrageous. Here's a person who's suffering from suicide or, or is having contemplating suicidal thoughts, a young person. And we said in terms of the rate of an adolescent, the impulsivity, uh, the lack of support, the need for social support, the social dynamics whereby they're pro she's probably suffering in terms of her friends and telling them and expressing and discussing. And, and she's in crisis. And yet there's no response. I'll give you another example. There was a lone soldier from California who called me came here to Israel serving in the army. He called me. He said, I have a terrible problem. He said, I am contemplating suicide. I walked over to a psychiatric hospital in uh, Ramat Gan and he knocked on their doors and he said, I need to be admitted. I need treatment. I need help. And they, they turned them away. They said that they just don't have, they don't have the facility. They don't have the capacity. And you just heard it from what you read from the Facebook post. That mother said she took her daughter knife at hand in a state of crisis, anxious, and the hospital did not admit her. We had it with Gila, whereby we would bring Gila after she swallowed pills, okay, and attempted suicide. And that is an attempted suicide. And she was released from the hospital within 12 hours. Now, uh, someone who's suffering as such, I'm not saying they necessarily have to be in a hospital, but they certainly have to be admitted to some kind of program. Number one, if they, if they just uh, attempted suicide, there's no question that their life is in danger. And it's a known fact scientifically that anyone who attempted suicide, the chances of them attempting again increases significantly. And uh, right at that moment, they need to be surveyed. They need to be protected. They need to be in a safe environment. To let them go, to discharge them with such, within such a short period of time is, is not only irresponsible, it's a complete lack of regard for what we call human life. And that's why- It sounds almost like somebody shows up with cardiac arrest. Exactly. They revive him without taking really care of the problem and saying, okay, go home, you'll be fine. Exactly right. And that's something, by the way, Rabbi Khan, that you mentioned in the last podcast is exactly the comparison that you made. And that's exactly right. And that's exactly right. 
so this is a very serious problem. Uh, and by the way, it's a very strange thing because we know that there's a shortage in this country of psychiatrists. Uh, there's also a shortage in this country of doctors. Why is it so difficult, so challenging to get into psychiatric school or to get into school to become a psychologist? It's one of the most difficult fields to enter in this country. Now, you could tell me because you know there's not enough spots, there's not enough places. Okay, well, then there should be budget allocated for proper training to allow people more opportunities to go into this field. Now, one of the things that this, this um, Dr. Zaltzman also mentioned is that it's not a desirable field to enter. So you have many people who, who would potentially be interested in the field of psychology or psychiatry, but then they see the conditions of work and the lack of support and the risk that's at hand and the salary, which is considerably low. And they opt and they say, what do I need this for? The same thing goes with regard to social workers. Social workers here are tremendously underpaid, understaffed, um, undertrained, by the way. Uh, most social workers who work in this country under the governmental system do not have full-time salaries because they cannot allocate them full-time jobs. So they have part-time salaries of like, you know, a couple hours here, a couple hours there. Now, mm -hmm. the moment you take someone and split their salary, okay, and split their job, I should say, forget about their salary, split their job, in two or three directions, that's the moment that the person cannot necessarily get a grasp or a grapple with what's going on around them, particularly in the mental health field. I see my own daughter right now, who's 20, she'll soon be 21. She's hoping to go to university next year and was strongly considering going into psychology, but she probably won't because she said, even if I get a degree in psychology, the chances of my getting into a graduate program are so small because of the way the system works over here, even though she's smart and she's talented. And social work won't pay if I go into it. It's hard to get a job. So why should I even bother in the first place? I'll go into something else altogether. It's a terrible problem. Exactly. Exactly. It, uh, it requires a complete overhaul. On top of that, Icon, you didn't ask me about this and that's okay. So I'm just going to segue into it. Okay. Because please, once you get me rolling, you know, I just <laughs> aim the dove herself. I'm just <laughs> well, that's why you're here <laughs> Yeah, right. because I right. want to hear what you have to say. Right. Right. Well, at least someone does, but um, the, uh, one of the things that we didn't touch upon as well, and it relates to this is education. Okay. So one of the things that they emphasize, for example, at yesterday at the conference, and I heard it over and over again, it all begins with education. It all begins with education. Well, that might, that might be very true. And, and what is it? It all begins, what is it? In other it? words, I'm sorry, mental health awareness, breaking stigmas, uh, empathy, all of these things begin with education. And by the way, I'm a, big, I'm a big advocate of that. I do believe that that's true, especially when we begin at a young age. You take kids and, and young teens and educate them properly and teach them sympathy and empathy. And not only that, not for others, Let's talk about the fact that they need to be aware for themselves that there's nothing wrong with saying that I am fallible, that I make mistakes, that I am human, that I have emotions, that I don't feel right right now. There's nothing wrong with that because, you know, 80% of the population feel that consistently. So, this, and, and what happens is, is that we create in this society this kind of like image of machismo and being macho because of the army and because of the pre-military academies. And I work in them. I work in the army. I work in pre-military academies. I get it. We need to do that. And we need to give them that confidence and self-security. But I always remind them. We also need to remind them that they're human. They have fallacies. 
They can have sensitivities. They can have emotions. And emotions can be things that you have to deal with, things that can be overwhelming at times. There's Not only is there nothing wrong with that, but that's part of being normal. But let me ask you a question. How many times have you heard in this country, and now I'm going to say rabbis, politicians, professionals, how many times do you hear them say, I was wrong? I was wrong. Or I don't know. Or I am confused. You never hear it. You never hear it from right. anyone in the army. You never hear it. And I get that because, okay, maybe that's something that they shouldn't publicize. Okay. But you never hear it from a politician. You never hear it from rabbis. You never hear it from educators. What's wrong with saying? I don't know. I'm human. To teach a kid that we're human could be more valuable than anything they'll learn from a textbook. And unfortunately, that type of education does not resonate enough in this country. And what, and, and what I'm leading to is that, for example, yesterday, there was a, a representative of parents at the conference. Her name is Rebi Talabu. I hope I said that correct. And she's from Hanagata Orimautzi, like kind of like a, a parent a disciplinary group that represents the country. And she said that if you look at the services within schools from Gan, from kindergarten up, okay, there is only 3% time allocated to all schools, to all educational resources for dealing with the nefesh, dealing with mental health and mental state. 3% of their time within school. In other words, on average, throughout their schooling, and 3% to deal with the mental health, to deal with your mental capacity and your, your state of your mental health, it, it's absolutely, obviously it's, it's not sufficient and it doesn't even come close to be able to grapple with what kids are going through today. So we need to allocate more funds, more educational programs for kids to educate them so that when they get a little older, uh, we don't necessarily confront these problems as they grapple with more uh, more issues that are going to come up. And, and I say this all the time, uh, and that is that this country has a tendency. And by the way, I love the country. I live here 31 years. I'm a full avid Zionist. I served in the army, my kids, etc. But, you know, when you love something, you're allowed to criticize. Right, it. right. You can't kill them with kindness. You have to be able to criticize in order to be able to improve. And I will say that this country consistently is always responsive rather than preventative. They always respond to a tragedy and then they give therapy to deal with the tragedy. They rectify the problem after the tragedy happened, after people lost their lives and they're not preventative. They don't think ahead. What kind of things can I implement in order to ensure that these things don't happen again? So we're going to get to some of those possibilities in just a moment. Just something you said a moment ago resonated. I wanted to emphasize it only from my own personal experience. When you talk about rabbis and teachers and people in the army and politicians and all of us, maybe it's the culture, maybe it's everywhere, I don't know, having a difficult time saying, I'm fallible, I was wrong, I made a mistake, I don't know. I used to run a yeshiva. I remember one time a student with whom I'm quite close was at my house on an Erev Shabbos. And let's just say I wasn't at my best, getting stressed out, you know, Erev Shabbos. And 
usually I, I try to hide that at least from my students. I Let's put it like that. I can't imagine that, Rabbi Khan. How could that possibly- Right, yeah, it's impossible to imagine. I'm so even keeled. <laughs> but but I, I was not at my best. And I realized the student saw me like that. And I said to him, I said, uh, look, I'm sorry, you know. Uh, and he goes, oh, you mean you're human? And it was one of the most memorable things that anyone ever said to me the whole time I ran a yeshiva because he was right. He goes, you're allowed to be human. It's okay. In fact, it's probably better for people to see you as a human being rather than somehow they're thinking that you are some sort of infallible rabbi who never makes a mistake and has perfect midot and doesn't mess up. And I think the idea of being able to say, I don't know, I'm human, I was wrong, and so on and so forth— is a key message that everybody needs to hear because too often people have to put on this this macho exterior pretending they're never. By the way, I'll just, I'll just mention the reason why that's so important is because when kids and teens hear that more, okay, that breaks stigmas. Then they don't have a stigma in thinking to themselves, oh my gosh, how can I go to talk to someone about the dark thoughts that I have or the depressive state that I'm in? That is in conflict with what society expects from me. The more that we break those stigmas and we discuss those feelings and emotions and that it's part of our health, uh, the more that the kids will be prone to express themselves and discuss and seek care. The statistics show that the amount of adolescents in this country, in Israel, that will, will be willing to seek therapy is very, very low. I have a Rebbe who, when I ask him for advice, will very often give advice and say, I just don't want you to make the same mistakes that I made. And I always found that to be a very kind way of putting it. He's not giving me advice in his vision because he knows so much. He goes, I've already been through it. I've already made these mistakes. So I'm going to help you avoid the pitfalls. That's part of it yeah. as well. I mean, I, w- I would add, I don't want you to make the same mistakes I make because I'm interested in you. But if you do, it's okay. We can learn them together. We can learn together. Rabbi Hamrick, we talk about some specific solutions now. You mentioned adding to the budget. We talked in general about changing perceptions in society. That's easier said than done. It's difficult to talk about how to actually make that real. Can you talk about what we should be doing as a society, both in Israel and abroad as well? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to, I am going to make this a little personal. I'll, I'll tell you some of the efforts that I'm involved in, and hopefully I will be able to adapt and to apply that accordingly. So one of the things that I spoke about, one of the problems that exists is stigmas. We have to break stigmas. How do you break stigmas? You break stigmas through awareness, discussion, conversation, openness. Okay. Um, I always say one of the advantages, uh, it sounds strange, but one of the, I, I think that we're blessed with in our family, the tragedy, the catastrophe, the, the trauma that we deal with consistently, all my children, my wife, myself, since Gila's loss, one of the things that we have going for us that helps, helps us kind of keep things together in as much as possible is that we're open. We have open discussion, we engage, we converse. And by the way, many times my kids will say, Abba, do me a favor and just shut up. I mean, they might not use that word, but they, they are pretty much saying that. And they say, Abba, just do us a favor. We don't want to hear it right now. We don't want to know about your mental health effort that you're involved in, yada, yada, yada. That's also okay. That, that's also a form of openness, saying I don't want to talk about it exactly right Exactly right. Exactly right. So the more that we're open and we engage and discuss, the greater chance we have of breaking stigmas. Um, I have a, a series of lectures that I offer in English and in Hebrew. It's called Dalkashil Gila, Gila's Way. It's in her memory. And I give it 
all over Israel. Especially, I try to concentrate on pre-military academies, on adolescents. I don't give it to anyone from 12th grade and below, but certainly uh, adolescents, young adults who come out of high school and enter programs, I, I give it over in the army. The more that we discuss and give lectures about someone, the things that Gila went through, for example, from personal experience. Now, I know I'm not a mental health professional, nor do I pretend to be, but I am unfortunately someone who suffers personally and who saw, you know, one of the people who's closest to me in my life suffer from it and be the victim of it. So when I'm able to impart these ideas, her story, um, the things that she experienced, these are things that you know, people sometimes are in shock. How can you speak about this? Wow, you're willing to talk. There is not one time, not one time that I give a lecture in any of these institutions, including to guidance counselors, including to communities, including to schools, that at least two people will come over to me and discuss and engage with me. I have the following problem. My friend is experiencing this. My child is experiencing this. And it leads to conversation. It also hopefully leads to solution because it, what it shows is, is that some of these people just don't know what to do with themselves or they don't know where to turn to for their child or they're not being given proper direction. That's not saying that I always have a solution or that I can give proper direction, but at the very least, I can point them in the direction of people who I feel we can trust to give them that guidance. So that's the first thing. And I can just give you an example, uh, two examples. One is that I gave a lecture over in a community and it'll go unnamed. But as a result of that lecture, three months later, three months later, okay, I get a call from someone out of the blue. I have no idea who he is. He said, Rabbi Hammer, I heard your lecture. It's in Hebrew. I heard your lecture in the following city. I live there. My nephew is in crisis. He locked himself up in a house for a week. He will not talk to anyone. He broke the locks. No one can get in. What do I do? And we were able to possibly even save his life, but we were able to intervene. I was able to get the proper people involved and we went to the house and we helped this, uh, this boy. And now hopefully he's a little more grounded and, 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 you know, trying to get the proper help. And you never know when you talk about something, how far those consequences can lead. Absolutely. And I can tell you it's happened many, many times over. The second thing that we're doing is, uh, and this is a result of Stuart Katz, who's an unbelievable person. Uh, he started an organization, an Amutak called Ogin, and he was successful in bringing over what's called mental health first aid. There's a mental health first aid course that he brought over from Australia. It originated there. There were 28 countries offering this course. Now Israel is the 29th. We have certified, as a result of Stuart's efforts, we have certified 12 people who are now certified instructors to disseminate this course. And uh, myself, my partner, Ruchi Bromberg, who's an unbelievable person, uh, we have been able to disseminate and to give over this course. We're now going approaching the third course that we'll be giving over in Israel. Now, why is this important? It's a mental health first aid course. It enables people to learn not therapy, not to be therapists, not to diagnose, absolutely not, but to be able to respond to a crisis and ground a person who is suffering just to demonstrate empathy, to discuss with them, and hopefully as a result of your grounding them, 
bringing them to a better place, to a place where they then will search for a long-term solution. Now, I will tell you that two weeks ago, one of the parents, okay, one of the women who took the course, okay, she contacted me and her own child was in crisis. Now, as a result of the course, she said to me, I knew how to deal with my child. I was able to bring them to a better place. And now we're, we're trying to search for the proper therapy. But because mm-hmm. she took the, the course, she never dreamed, by the way, that her course, that her child would have this problem. It, it just came up about two months after she took the course, which can happen. It can happen to any of us. And because she had the utensils, the skills that she learned, the skill set, if you may, that she learned in the course, she was able to deal to deal uh, accordingly. Who is the course designed for? Who was supposed to take this course? The course is called a teen mental health first aid course. It is for anyone over the age of 18 who deals with anyone under the age of 18. So we're talking about across the board, every parent should be taking this course, guidance counselors, even professionals we've had take the course, like social workers, where they might be familiar with many, much of the material, but number one, it needs to be rehashed. And the way that we give it over is specifically to deal with crisis at the moment. And so they've been giving skill sets that they were not enabled with beforehand. Certainly, I'll give a plug that teachers in Midrashot, seminaries, yeshivot, should be taking this without question. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because inevitably and unfortunately, at some point of their career, and I would even say some point of one's parenting, they're going to have to confront these issues with their children, with their students, with their, you know, with their chanichim, uh, and so on and so forth. So there's no question. So the more that we disseminate this course, and we already have a course set up in a few more cities, uh, people can get in touch with me directly to have this course, to host this course. I'll give them the details. And it's absolutely incredible. It's very experiential uh, at the same time. In other words, we do it through exercises and very informative as well. The third thing that we're doing now is with that coursework, we're trying to bring in and implement a teen course. In other words, a course that should be given, and I hope that it will get approved through the Ministry of Education, that it should absolutely be part of the curriculum where we will go into schools or go into institutions and and teach teens about mental health, break that stigma for them and teach them about various challenges that people have who are suffering from mental illnesses and to break those stigmas and to demonstrate and teach them what it means to empathize, not only to empathize for others, but more importantly, to empathize for themselves. And Mm -hmm. then as a result of that, we believe, number one, many of them will be willing to engage in conversation. They'll be willing to explore further and um, they will hopefully be equipped as well with, at the very least, recognizing, identifying problems that are out there and assisting and encouraging their friends to get help. Uh, so that's that's a third initiative that we're involved with. And I, I hope that through MK, Michal Waldiger, be able to, we'll be meeting with her again. I'm taking her to uh, Gila's former school in a week and a half where Gila was so that she could see these schools that are therapeutic environments and uh, hopefully we can implement this course as well. And finally, and this is uh, a very, very important, and again, we can apply all of these efforts across the board. I can, I'm only one man, and you know, I'm only limited to a small team, 
and small efforts, but uh, you know, I do the best we can. What we're trying to implement as well, we're in the middle of putting it together is a program, which is called Navigation to Salvation. Now, what this means is, and it's very important for people to understand, when it comes to someone who's suffering from mental illness, particularly adolescents and young adults, time is life. So the faster you respond to a person, number one, it's a known thing with regards to therapy, that if someone suffered a trauma, the faster you respond to that trauma and identify the trauma, the greater chance you have of assisting that person and for them to arrive at more healing. I just read this morning, by the way, the same thing goes with regards to OCD, okay, obsessive compulsive disorder. The faster you treat it, the greater chance you have of allowing that person or allotting that person opportunity and skill sets with how to live with hmm. it. So time is extremely vital. And especially when it comes to, to suicide, Rahman al-Zlan, someone who's contemplating uh, taking their lives, the, the quicker that you respond to them and demonstrate that empathy, that you're there for them, the faster or the greater chances you have of saving their life. So what we're doing is uh, we are putting together, I guess what you would call a super team. Uh, there's a specific psychologist who I know very well and who I've referred already people to many times, and he's been, uh, thank God, very successful in helping them. What he does is he doesn't invite people to his office or his clinic. He actually is what we call an ishetach, which is something that I always love, being out there in the forefront in the field on the battlefield. He goes mm -hmm. to the person who is suffering, to the young adult who's in crisis, he meets the family, he assesses the situation, and then he meets the young adult and creates a rapport with them. And he then strategizes and builds a program specifically geared for this individual. In the ideal world, when it comes to mental health, it is so complex, and every person is so complex. In the ideal world, every person who suffered from mental health should have their own tailored program for them, what they need. Now, obviously, that's a, a virtual impossibility, but this is what he does within his capacity. But he told me, I'm overwhelmed. Uh, you know, he, he's, he's only one person. So I'm trying to create four or five of him or hers that will be on this team. We will meet together to discuss the ideas and to give skill sets. And then they'll go out to the field and hopefully have impact and create these uh, models for people suffering from mental health and to at least get them on track. So it's really a navigation system, mm -hmm. but it's a navigation with practical application and, uh, and then follow up. Rabbi Hammer, we don't have that much time left, but I want to ask you two more questions sort of as a summation, one personal and one general. If you don't mind, the personal question is, is it difficult for you to spend so much time talking about this issue, given your own very sad personal connection, the tragedy that occurred to Gila and to your family, to do so much and to constantly be involved in this, is that something which is difficult for you? The answer is yes. Um, many people ask me that question. Um, I, I've always been the type of a person who, who has felt on a mission. So I, I still, I always tell people, I always consider myself young enough to save the world. And um, I'm a little insane enough to believe that I can do so. Uh, 
so uh, my response immediately after Gila died was, okay, how am I going to change the world so that this doesn't happen again to anyone else? And to be honest, it's not just uh, for the sake of others, it's for the sake of doing it to commemorate Gili's memory so that her death, which I still uh, never will ever make sense out of, um, will, excuse me, not have been, uh, you know, uh, with, without purpose. Um, if you could say such a thing. But but as far as being involved in these efforts, there's no question that it saps strength out of me. It saps emotion out of me. Um, but there's also no question that I'm, I'm not so good at restraining myself. I get calls um, day and night from people who don't know what to do, and I can't turn them away. You know, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, the most prized value that we have is life. So who am I to to tamper with it or to, to, God forbid, risk that it should be compromised again. And so um, that, that's my approach. Having said that, every couple of months, um, I need to go away. Uh, and I, I try to do so. Um, I try to take my wife with me, um, which I, I think is probably a sane idea so far. And, uh, and we, 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 I just need to have a break where no one can reach me and where I can kind of filter out and uh, recharge my batteries. So, plus I'll tell you, one of the things that concerns me, and I, I think it might even at times concern my family, is what am I sacrificing by doing all this work? There's no question, I don't think, that it will take a toll on me. It takes a toll on me physically, and it will take a toll on me in the future. And by the way, many people who are involved in the mental health field um, they're limited to only a few years because if they're not able to filter it somehow, it just saps their strength and emotion and they're incapacitated. So, um, yeah, the answer is, yeah, there's no question that it does. But I uh, I will still continue to try to do so, um, you know, in, in love of Gili. And I just want to say one more thing. And this is a shout out to my children who are unbelievable children. And that is that. Um, you know, I, 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 uh, I walk between life and death every day. Um, and I need, I need reminders that I have, Baruch Hashem, that we have, you know, five children who are alive, beautiful children, uh, three in-law children, daughter-in-law, two sons-in-law, who I consider them my own and three most gorgeous grandchildren who, for some strange reason, happen to be the cutest children in the world. We were blessed with that. So I have to remind myself of that. And I try to actively do so. And sometimes they need to do that to me. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's a struggle that I consistently wow. encounter. And Rabbi Hammer, as a final point before we go, and as you know, we're going to have you back on the podcast very soon to talk about some other issues about Gila and uh, your experience as a, a grieving parent. But today, just as a matter of summation, what would you tell briefly a parent, a teacher, a friend who has someone in his or her life who has talked about suicide? If that parent, teacher, friend hears that, what do they do? What's the first thing they should do? The first thing that a person should do, and I say this very tenuously and carefully, because you have to really... Be sure that you understand what to do and be sure that that's what's in front of you. The known thing, and this is unfortunate that it's not known here, 
and not en- not enough amongst professionals. They do they are not aware of this enough. The first thing you do to someone who you believe is contemplating or can be contemplating suicide is ask them outright, without patronizing, without guessing games, and without extra vernacular. Are you thinking of killing yourself? Are you thinking of taking your life? Now, many people are shocked when they hear that, and they should not be. The reason why we ask that immediately to someone who is contemplating or you think is thinking in crisis that they are contemplating of taking their life, you must ask that question. The reason why is because you will immediately relieve them of a burden that's on their shoulders. They'll say, wow, finally, someone gets me. Someone is asking me the question directly. They're not afraid to hear my reaction. They're not afraid to talk about it. And they're not afraid to call it as it is. Here is someone that understands me. And that will open them up to you. And what you want to do is you want to be able to demonstrate to this person who's in crisis. I love you. I care about you. And I understand you. I don't know exactly what you're going through. And I'm not there but I'm with you and I am willing, prepared and want to hear what you have to say. And obviously that gives you a lot to the opportunity to follow it up. The follow-up is let's explore other options. Let's talk about other possibilities. But the moment that you ask that question, you lift from them a huge weight that is bearing down on them and that they feel because of the stigma that exists in all societies that they can't talk to anyone about. And that's very, very important. One of the things I mentioned in my first podcast, I think, is that Gila's mental health professionals, as far as we know, never asked her that question, never discussed with her the issue of suicide, and they certainly never discussed it with us. No one. And that's a mistake. Suicide is a reality. It's a symptom of a sickness and an illness, and therefore it has to be discussed. No one says that, you know, someone suffering, God forbid, who is ill with cancer, that they're not going to use the word chemo because they don't want to scare the person. No, you you have to talk about things openly. Obviously, you got to be trained. You have to do it very carefully with kids' gloves. But if one knows how to do so, that is the first thing that they either have to get someone to discuss with them or they themselves, if they feel they can, have to discuss with someone. And that's only when they're at the very, very point of crisis. If not, I will say that the most important thing, again, and the key to all of this is to demonstrate to that youngster, to that, to that family member, to the colleague, to the person who's with you, that you're with them, that you care about them. And you're not going anywhere. And if, if it means sitting still and not saying anything, that's also okay. And if it means the next day trying again, that's also okay. Person who's in crisis and depression, they need to know they're prepared to give up on themselves. So at the very least, they have to know that the people around them are not giving up on them. Rabbi Hammer, if somebody wants to contact you or follow you on social media, I'll also include this in the show notes and the description of the podcast, but just right now, could you say where people can find you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so first of all, you should go to my website. It's on Breaking Stigmas. It's rabbihammer.com. If you go to the website, immediately there'll be a uh, what's called a pop-up uh, for a free YouTube 
uh, video that they can get about adolescents who are suffering from depression and tips to deal with it. So you should sign up for that on an email. Um, and then you can certainly see that video and you'll see other lectures and presentations that I offer uh, worldwide. Um, and that's part of the breaking stigma. So rabbihammer.com. My Facebook page is extremely important as well. We post there every single day. Did you know facts, articles about mental health, uh, initiatives that we're involved with. So that's Facebook. That's Rabbi Hammer on Facebook. It's on Instagram as well. And on TikTok, uh, it's all Rabbi Hammer. And um, yeah, certainly, certainly uh, welcome to, to see me there. I also have a YouTube channel. I post every single week uh, Gila's Way, which is a connection to the weekly Torah portion and, and what's going on around us in society. You can subscribe to that YouTube channel. There are also mental health videos that I put up. I've discussed recently suicide. They're all uh, short snippets, so to speak, uh, about eight to 10 minutes, which I've been told is way beyond anyone's capacity to concentrate these days. But um, you can certainly subscribe to my YouTube channel, Rabbi Hammer, as well. And uh, I welcome hearing from anyone. And I certainly will try to respond accordingly. And I welcome feedback. Well, Rabbi Hammer, I do appreciate your being so forthright and open today on this podcast, as well as in the previous one. What you're doing is so important, as you know. And the fact that you are doing this in memory of Gila, it speaks well for her memory and is such an important thing for Kali Yisrael. So I thank you. And I'm sure all of our listeners will get so much out of this conversation. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Rabbi. May we only know Bissarotovot, only good tidings, and only uh, healthy living. Thank you. If you would like to contribute in Gila's memory to help Rabbi Hammer break stigmas in mental health, please click on the link that appears in the description of this podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.